Good morning. Good afternoon. Or good evening. We don't discriminate. Time is an illusion of gravity. Welcome to the Queers Have Eyes. We are your horror movie gays. We have eyes. And you are here to listen to our opinions and maybe learn a little while you do it. Uh, hopefully. Let's kick this off by introducing the stars of our show, us. My name is Chase. And my name is Richard. And we are here to blend the horrors of the real world the delights of the horror film world. And I guess some of you might be wondering who we are, which is fucking ridiculous. We just told you. I'm Chase. This is Richard. But what gives us the right to speak about anything queer? Well, I own two leather jackets. I own two cats. I'm bisexual and trans mask, and apparently I do everything in twos. My pronouns are they, them, and that's why you are here. As the feminine voice on this podcast. Good, not me. I am non-binary. I use he, they pronouns. And I'm gay. <laughs> Why don't you tell the people where your love of horror began? Okay, so my parents wouldn't let me watch fucking anything until I was like 17. Nothing over PG. Um, but when I was 11, I went to a slumber birthday party and they watched Freddy vs. Jason. It was fucking delightful. It wasn't scary, but it did remind me of comedy, which I'm a huge fan of. Hell yeah. What about you? I guess my love of horror probably began when I was 11 or 12. It was Christmas time. My family was decorating with Night of the Living Dead from 1968 on in the background. Solid choice. Yeah, I guess I paid too much attention to the TV because for weeks after that I had nightmares and I refused to go alone to our basement, which is where my bedroom was. So, uh, I, that's probably it. Yeah. yeah. Have you watched a lot of horror since? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Especially with you. Yeah. The horrible horror that we have put ourselves through in research for this podcast is... It's a lot. Um, I started when I moved out at 18, because that's what you do. You get the fuck out. With the entire Saw series. That's where my love of horror came from. Also, my love of Carrie Elway's. Mm. Do you want to fuck him or be him? Both. Um, as a bisexual, I medically can't choose. <laughs> I've heard that about you. <laughs> so we've got the credentials. And we've got the friendship. How long? How long have we been friends, Chase? I don't know, like a year and... Eight months and two weeks? Really? Feels like longer than that. Have you been keeping track? I would never do math for fun. <laughs> I'm blessed with your friendship, Chase. Yeah, I'm and... surprised you're not sick of me yet. Well, that is surprising since we work together and do a podcast together. 
also do other things together. Don't put that out there. Uh, eyebrows, eyebrows. Oh, no. <laughs> anyway, they're probably sick of hearing us talk about ourselves. So let's talk about the podcast. Every show, we want to talk about some queer history. Really uh, delve into our culture, learn something new. Hopefully you learn something new as well. Yeah, because reality is the real horror. Um, and if you don't learn it, they'll erase it. They keep doing that. Stop it. Stop it. Anyway, we'll do our best to keep you updated on all things horror-related as well. And then we'd like to give you a queer icon every week that we can worship. And then after that, we'll go into our horror film of the week. And this should go without saying, there will be spoilers. Yeah, every week there will be spoilers. Are you up to it? I'm always up to something. And I've had it up to here with this intro. So let's talk about December 13th, 2022. What happened on December 13th, 2022, exactly a year ago today? Okay, so 2022, the Respect for Marriage Act was signed into law by President Joe Biden, a bill that requires the U.S. federal government and all U.S. states and territories to recognize the validity of same-sex marriage legally performed in the United States. So that means if you legally require, acquire, if you legally acquire a marriage license, it is recognized across all 50 states. Yeah, if you get one in Kentucky, fuck you, Kim Davis, it's recognized in California. If you get one in California, it's recognized in Puerto Rico. Should go without saying, but uh, it had to be said. Basically, when the conservative majority Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs versus Jackson's Women Health Organization decision about women's birth control. Fuck that. Fuck that. Abortion is healthcare. Healthcare should be a right, but this is the U.S. Anyway. When that dumpster fire fucking decision came through, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas wrote that other cases pertaining to the relationships of consenting adults should also be repealed, which is including the 2015 decision Obergefell v. Hodges. Obergefell v. Hodges, which basically legalized same-sex marriage in this country as we know it. He thought... Oh, I have that right now? It's my right forever? No. Wait, 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 wait. Doesn't the Respect for Marriage Act also include interracial marriages? It does, which is weird that Clarence Thomas would write that because he is in an interracial marriage. Okay. Fuck me. I don't know. Yeah, I guess that marriage is going great. So straight marriage is doing real well. Imagine, always have. Imagine hating gay people so much. You would fucking take away your own rights. That's wild. Never in my life. Yeah. It should be noted that the Respect for Marriage Act is totally fine. Um, as long as you have a marriage license from a state. But it does not protect your rights on a state level to get a marriage license. So if a state decides that you do not get a marriage license as a same-sex couple, like... They're just not going to give it to you, which means they're going to get sued into oblivion. And that decision will probably go all the way up to the Supreme Court that contains the same supermajority that overturned Roe v. Wade, which means they're probably going to overturn Obergefell v. Hodges. I cannot say that. Obergefell v. Hodges, which means your rights aren't guaranteed because those things were made on the same legal basis. And like, 
I can't give you the legal explanation uh, too deep because I'm hot and dumb and I have Google and I stay in my lane and I'm not a lawyer. But <laughs> I did not study political science in college. I did not go to college, mm -hmm. but uh, it basically means we have to stay vigilant, guys. Fight to be the final girl. Yes. And don't just be the dumbasses who'd rather get fucking lit and have sex until the gore fest happens because they'll gore you up. I mean, still have sex and still, get high. Yeah, do but... those things, for sure. That's not what we're saying. This podcast, unequivocally, says you should get high and have sex. However, fight for your rights as well. Well, I, for one, do not feel any amount safer by knowing any of that information. Yeah, and that's why it's so important to get out and vote at every level of government. Every level of government. Yeah. School board. Some no-name clerk. You better vote for that shit. Fine with skeletons that are in those closets. Otherwise, you will be in those closets. I'm not going back to the closet. If you'd like to make sure you're registered to vote, please go to vote.gov. Um, you should be able to find any voting information you need there. Your polling place, um, deadlines for registering, things like that. And as a reminder, the big election is coming up next year. So do your research. Do your research. All right, Chase, let's move on to something a little lighter. How about some horror news? Fuck yeah. A new trailer was released this week for a supernatural horror film from Lionsgate, directed by Andrew Baird, who also directed Zone 414 in 2021 and One Way in 2022. The film will drop in January of 2024. It's about a man, very scary, played by Alex Pettifer, who roams the land as a blood-drinking creature of the night as he mourns the loss of his family at the hands of a demagogue, played by Guy Pierce. The trailer is deliciously dark, keeps you on the edge of your seat, and feeds on your fears. Jennifer Love Hewitt said this week that she would be 100% down to do another I Know What You Did Last Summer film, which further proves that no one has a single new idea. Have we all given up? Or is nostalgia culture the only thing we can provide the masses? Did the original film scare me as a teen? Yes. Were Ryan Philippi and Freddie Prince Jr. huge secret crushes of mine before I came out? Yes. Will I be watching this remake directed by Jennifer Caton Robinson, one of the writers of Thor Love and Thunder? Also yes. We finally got a little sneak peek of Welcome to Dairy, the Max original prequel to the 2017 and 2019 It films based on Stephen King's book. It's not much. If you blink, you'll probably miss it. But it is enough to get me excited for a, re a release... But it is enough to get me excited for a release that has been pushed back to 2025. Oh, the humanity. I did read all 1,168 pages of the book, which has the coolest transitions between chapters I have personally ever experienced. And I am down to clown and learn more about our shape-shifting demon clown from another world who haunted my dreams for the first time in the early 2000s with Tim Curry's Pennywise in the made-for-TV miniseries. I have to wonder if Bill Skarsgård not returning to his role as Pennywise in the prequel has anything to do with my next bit of news. Christmas 2024, we will be getting a remake. Christmas 2024, we will be getting a remake of the black and white classic from 1922, Nosferatu, starring Bill Skarsgård playing the blood-sucking hottie, Lily Rose Depp, daughter of creepy film icon Johnny Depp as our heroine, and Willem Dafoe, not DeFriend. This man has always given me the creeps, and I'm excited to see what he adds to this horror. Based on Bram Stoker's Dracula, the film tells the tale of obsession between a haunted woman, Ellen, played by Depp, 
in 19th century Germany and the ancient Transylvanian, the one in Romania, not to be confused with the galaxy, vampire Count Orlok, played by Skarsgård, who is stalking her and bringing untold horror with him. Is it going to be the plague? COVID? Monkeypox? That's all I have for this week, but we will do our best to keep you up to date with all of these projects and more when more information is released. All right. Our first queer icon is Candy Darling. Um, Richard picked Candy Darling, but I'd like to start by saying, Candy Darling, even if nobody ever remembers her, I remember her because she was the first trans out actress that I've ever heard of. That anyone had ever heard of. She was the first one. She ran with Andy Warhol until that dumpster fire human being decided to throw her to the curb because Andy Warhol was a dick. <laughs> um, tell, tell, tell the people about Candy Darling while I hate silently over Andy, Andy Warhol. Warhol. Well, our friend and colleague Candy Darling was born in the year 1944. When Candy was born, World War II was still happening. Just to put that in perspective for you. Candy Darling's birth name was none of our goddamn business. We do not dead name around here. I appreciate that. Anything for you, Trace. Um, I think we can definitely just, like, dive right into Candy in the gay scene. I, Candy's childhood is less important outside of the fact that Candy watched old Hollywood movies growing up and used to impersonate all of the actresses in those films. And ultimately succeeded in becoming one of those. Maybe not a Hollywood starlet, but definitely huge in the underground New York film scene, which is about as close to superstardom as an out queer person can get in a time when all queer behavior was outlawed. Definitely. It was illegal to be queer during this time, and... Candy was doing things like getting hormone injections and performing at gay bars. But more than that, Candy was also infiltrating the cis straight world, impressing people at parties to the point where she impressed Andy Warhol so much that he cast her in two of his films. She impressed Tennessee Williams and was cast by Tennessee Williams in one of his plays. Um, I think Candy Darling walked around with this star power in her everyday life, down to when Candy Darling was outed by one of her neighbors while she was still living at home with her mother. She dressed up and showed her mother who she was. And her mother in the 1960s said, Candy is too beautiful and too talented to hide who she is. So this parent in the 1960s accepted her trans daughter just like that. We're talking 60 years later, you are having a problem with trans people still. Candy started hormone injections in, like, 1963. That makes Candy one of the first wave of trans people to get hormone injections. That is a huge deal. The science barely backed it up. It was not safe. That's how desperately Candy needed to be who she was. And everyone saw that. Even Lou Reed mm. from the Velvet Underground wrote a song 
named Candy says that I I didn't know it was Lou Reed. And I didn't know it was about Candy Darling, but I had heard it from the degenerates, and I was always struck by the opening line. Candy says, I've come to hate my body and all that requires in this world. And I think that's every trans person's experience. Can you imagine waking up, well, you can, waking up every single day of your life, being uncomfortable just at the start of your day in who you are. That's before you add the levels of society and strangers looking at you, strangers catcalling you, strangers forcing their opinions on you. Here we are, forcing our opinions. I'm just kidding. You're here willingly. Um, Maybe they aren't. Maybe they're tied up somewhere, and this is just played on a loop. We do not condone that, unless it's something you're into, because we don't yuck anyone's yum. Yeah, consensual tie-ups, always chill. So... Before any of us were born, Candy Darling lived, lived her truth. Lived more than I ever have. Absolutely. Was out and proud and died before I was ever thought of. And I think Candy was able to find joy in her life, even down to her death where she wrote a letter on her deathbed that I would like to read for you now, if that's all right. Yeah. To whom it may concern, by the time you read this, I will be gone. Unfortunately, before my death, I had no desire left for life. Even with all my friends and my career on the upswing, I felt too empty to go on in this unreal existence. I am just so bored by everything. You might say, bored to death. It may sound ridiculous, but it's true. I have arranged my own funeral arrangements with a guest list, and it is paid for. I would like to say goodbye to Jackie Curtis. I think you're fabulous. Holly, Sam Green, a true friend and noble person. Ron Link, I'll never forget you. Andy Warhol, what can I say? Paul Morrissey, Lenny, you know I love you. Andy, you too. Jeremiah, don't take it too badly. Just remember what a bitch I was. Geraldine, I guess you saw it coming. Richard Turley and Richard Golub. I know I could have been a star, but I decided I didn't want it. Manuel, I'm better off now. Terry, I love you. Susan, I am sorry. Did you know I couldn't laugh? I always knew it. I wish I could meet you all again. Goodbye for now. Love always. Candy darling. Queer icon. Candy Darling did die of cancer on March 21st, 1974. And they do believe that that cancer was caused by the hormone injections she received in the 60s. But I'm willing to bet that Candy Darling herself would not go back, would not say, don't give me these hormone injections, don't give me this... 10 years of my life where I can be who I am, I can be free, I can be myself. I can't speak for her, but I don't think she would go back and change that. She might have died young, but she lived. Well, Candy Darling did get to live her dream for 10 years, um, during a time when it was illegal to be queer. And for that, she is a queer icon. And the Queers Have Eyes salutes you.
Unfortunately, since she did die in March of 1974, she was unable to see our first film we are going to dissect. Viciously. Um, but considering she wasn't in the film, I don't think she'd care. <laughs> You're right. Let's begin our conversation on Black Christmas, 1974. This is going to be fast and furious, and I'm going to need a little help from our past selves. All right. The film opens on a sorority house. It's clearly not winter, but the chemical fire suppression foam implies it's supposed to be. Our cast is getting lit inside as a spooky figure watches from the window. Through POV, we see the killer climb up a trellis into the house. Downstairs is Barb, our bisexual icon, receiving a call that she can't hear. Bob, it's for you. So she kicks out all the men, which is valid. The killer creeps around upstairs while Claire, the virgin, chastely kisses her boyfriend Chris. Goodbye for the holidays. And also ever. Meanwhile, Phil, short for Phyllis, our resident lesbian, stands with one arm on a wall and Jess... Our hussy protagonist is sandwiched in between. The girls get another phone call from a moaner, and apparently not the first one, as Barb says he's extended his act. Barb and the caller go back and forth. It's hot, but non-consensual, so we don't approve. The killer ends with, I'm gonna kill you. Too bad nobody listened. Virgin Claire is upset Barb engaged the caller, and also upset she says, you can't rate a townie, which is fucked up, but we still stand. Claire goes upstairs to pack for her trip home. Mrs. Mack, the spinster house mother, comes home with gifts. Upstairs, Claire gets murdered with an empty dry-cleaning bag that wouldn't have been there if she had cleaned her fucking closet. Is it a common thing to leave dry-cleaning bags hanging in your closet? Question mark. I do, but I'm lazy. Period. I could see if there was something in it, but that bag is empty, my dude. One girl down, but actually up because the killer drags her body up a ladder to the attic. Apparently, he's strong and quiet, and just my type. Back downstairs, we find Mrs. Mack is an alcoholic who hides brandy in a hollowed-out encyclopedia. B for booze. That's brilliant. Although I think I would put something better in it than sherry. Oh, my bad. It's actually sherry these kind of inaccuracies that are going to blow up this podcast, Richard. Dad assumes she's being a hoe somewhere. But the actual hussy, Jess, played by Olivia Hussy, is dropping a bomb on Peter in the music hall. She's pregnant and going to abort. Peter doesn't like that, but fuck you and your forest green turtleneck. Barb is with the underprivileged kids at the party, getting them hammered while Dad calls Mom and says he's staying to find Claire, so it's looking serious. At home, Jess gets another call from the killer and says, You have the wrong number, but girl... He obviously does not. 
Barb, Phil, and Dad go to the police to report Claire missing. Bumbling fool, Officer Nash says she's probably just a hoe. Jess goes down to the hockey rink to see if Claire's boyfriend has seen her. He hasn't. Peter plays the piano badly for three ugly old men. That's what this sounds like when I play the piano. Never taken one lesson. Back at the police station, a woman reports her teen daughter is missing to Lieutenant Fuller, our sexy detective. Chris bursts in, angry that Nash called his virgin girlfriend a hoe. Lieutenant Fuller takes over the case. Everyone goes back to the sorority house, where Barb, drunk, tells a story about turtles banging with no one's consent. So she's a sexual predator. And I love her. Then she has a guilt-ridden freakout and is sent to bed. At the school, Peter beats his piano with a mic stand because it's the piano's fault he sucks, I guess. Major red flag behavior. A search party gathers in a local park to look for the missing teen, while Mrs. Mack packs for a trip home and looks for her cat. For some reason, she thinks the cat climbed up a ladder and opened the hatch to the attic, so she goes and looks, but nope, just dead Claire and a murderer. Hook to the face. Okay, but Billy didn't kill the cat, so that's very nice of him. The girl in the park is also dead. Oops. Jess comes home to another obscene psycho phone call, but this time she's over it and reports it to the police. Nash dismisses it, again, because a man's no information is more useful than a woman's fact somehow. Peter creeps down the stairs behind Jess because he's a sweepy boy and napped in the upstairs empty house, a likely story. Peter and Jess argue over the abortion. He says she's selfish and they should get married. She says, hell no, look at you, which pisses him off and he says, you'll be sorry. Lieutenant Fuller takes the obscene phone call case when P Phil, Dad, and Chris demand that the cops do actual work. So they come tap the sorority house phone lines. Well, one of them. There's two, but they don't tap the other one. Dun, dun, dun. They do, however, station a cop outside, far, far away in a car. The cops leave, and Phil cries about Claire, holding Jess a suspiciously long time, then gets ready for bed. Barb wakes up to an asthma attack. Jess runs upstairs to save her. She says she dreamed she saw a man in her room. Jess gives her an inhaler and Barb goes back to sleep while Jess goes down to listen to children screeching carols at the door. Turns out there was a man up there. Barb gets stabbed to death with the unicorn, a fitting end for our bisexual queen. Another phone call comes in, but it's too short to trace, and Lieutenant Sexy scolds Jess. As if it's her fault. Another phone call. It's Peter crying about bodily autonomy. A knock on the window from the remnants of the search party prompt Phil and Jess to lock the doors and windows. Fucking 70s. Another call from the killer. Their phone bill's gonna be ridiculous. This time, the call's long enough. The cops trace it. Nash tells Fuller the calls are coming from inside the house. Because the call is coming from inside the house. Fuller says, don't tell Jess. Call her and just tell her to go outside right now. Jesus oh, Christ. fucking Nash. You had one job, Nash. Jess grabs a poker from the fireplace and creeps upstairs to save her friends. So just know, I wouldn't leave you in the house with a serial killer just to save myself, Chase. 
Because now I'm already dead, Richard. Upstairs, she finds Phil and Barb in a bed. Lesbian. Super dead. And the killer is behind the door. Jess slams the door in his face and runs to the basement, locking it behind her. The killer bangs on the door for a while, but gives up and walks away, suspiciously cash. Jess hides deeper in the basement. Lieutenant McCotty races to the house to save her, but not fast enough because someone is yelling, Jess, outside the basement window. And it's Peter. He breaks through the window, suspiciously confident Jess is in the basement, as one always is. Jess also finds it suspicious and hides further in the shadows, but too late. He sees her. Cut to outside, the cops arrive. Lieutenant Fuller breaks through the basement door, finding a dead Peter and a passed out Jess. Case closed. Jess is the killer. JK. But they sedate her and lay her in bed to rest. The cops congratulate themselves for knowing it was Peter, and Claire's dad, who is still randomly here, faints for no reason. The cops leave to deal with a packed morgue. Wait, so the hospital couldn't take four dead bodies? Stationing one officer outside, which totally worked before. They'll check on her tomorrow. Hope Jess doesn't wake up too soon in the trauma murder house full of blood. I'm sure she'll feel really chill about it. The camera pulls through the attic in our final shot. Guess nobody ever found Mrs. Mac or Claire. Or the killer, uh, who creeps down the ladder. The phone starts ringing. End scene. That was a lot of words. I'm very proud of you, Chase. Thank you. Black Christmas 1974 did receive a 72% on Rotten Tomatoes. It also received a 7.1 out of 10 on IMDb. And it received a 7 out of 11 on The Queers Have Eyes. Now, we reached this score through 11 categories. Richard, what are those categories? One, traumability. Did this film traumatize you? Two. Chase, how dumb is the protagonist? That one's self-explanatory. Three. Halloween costume realness. Is there anything from the film you can dress as for Halloween? Four. Did you even go to Juilliard? How bad is the acting in this film? Five. Daddy, is that you? Why exactly do I want to fuck a serial killer? Six. Stream and cream. Is this a good film to bone to? Seven. Jump scares. Ah! Ah! Eight. Can I make this with an iPhone? Nine. Scream queens. Do these queens make you scream? Ten. Ghost face. Did anyone die with a great O face? And eleven. The queers have eyes. How queer do we think this film is? All right, up first is Traumability. We did give Traumability a 7 out of 11. Not for our current selves, but thinking, getting in a time machine, going back to the 70s and watching this film as a college-age student, definitely traumatized. Definitely traumatized. That man was in the house the whole time. The police did not want to listen to them. That's real. There were no cell phones. How do you communicate? We're just fucked. It's amazing humanity made it this far. Chase, how dumb is the protagonist? For this one, we gave it a 2 out of 11, because honestly, I don't think she was that dumb. 
She got pregnant with her red flag boyfriend and decided to abort it, which was totally fine because this was a year after Roe v. Wade. She was just exercising her rights. She was just exercising her rights. She had plans. She had a future. Just because her music major boyfriend decided to give up conservatory and demand he be her husband and raise this baby, like... Fuck that guy. Yeah, fuck that guy. Well, not again. She already fucked that guy. (laughs) Um, Don't fuck him anymore, but fuck that guy in general. There was a point where she was told to leave the house and not look back, but she just went upstairs to be a good friend to her lesbian lover, Phil. And she did grab a fire poker, which is more than most horror movie protags. All right. Halloween costume realness. We did give this a negative one out of 11 for Phil's boyfriend's haircut. But... It gives me a 10 out of 11 joy to know that I'm right when I say Phil is a lesbian because that is classic lesbian behavior. Short, stocky man with a porn stash and a receding hairline who also has an afro? Like, the only reason she can't see he's unattractive is because she can't see any men are unattractive. (laughs) Unless you're trying to dress as a person from the 70s, there's nothing here for you. Did you even go to Juilliard? We did give this an 8 out of 11. Uh, Olivia Hussey's acting was pretty top-notch. We were distracted a little bit the first time through with her accent. We never get the backstory on whether that accent is supposed to be real or if it's just her accent. But I think definitely on the second watch, I wasn't as distracted by her accent. No, I was way more distracted by how hot she is. I do believe that she was listed as one of the hottest women in the world at one point. Daddy, is that you? This category gets a zero out of 11. Uh, Yeah, I don't want to fuck the killer's eyeball particularly. Do you? Eyeball sex is not a kink of mine. Asphyxiation? Yes. At least there was something in there for you. Next, Streaming Cream, which we gave a 9 out of 11. The movie opens with a very dirty phone call that's pretty hot, and then nothing much happens for a while, giving you plenty of time to bone down. And the film's a little dark, so it's not going to shine any light on any of your questionable areas. Yeah, and as a personal anecdote, I did get laid the second time I watched this film, so proof. We have that in common. Oh, jump scares. One out of 11. There were no jump scares in this film. I think we're being generous with a one. Maybe the temper tantrum. No. No. No jump scares, but that's okay. This movie really didn't need it. Uh, There was a lot of slow building suspense since they didn't know he was in the house. Next, can I shoot this on an iPhone? Yes, you can, and it will look better, probably. 10 out of 11, can shoot it on an iPhone, would be better. Couldn't necessarily write this amazing script, but... You're too hard on yourself, Chase. You are a writer. I think you could write this. Scream Queens, 11 out of 11. Yay! I'm going to put in a yay right there. Maybe not. You'll find out when you listen to this. We're definitely giving her an 11 out of 11 because she is the queen of Scream. She is the original final girl. She lived 
Uh, not for much longer after the credits rolled, but that's not really what the category is about. That's up to your discretion at the end of the film. Um, but also, did you hear her lungs? She's screaming from the basement of the house and they can hear her outside. Yeah, over the police sirens. That is a scream queen. Next category is ghost face. I love this. 11 11 out of 11. 11 forever. Claire nailed it. Held her O face the entire movie. Let's give some snaps for Claire. The queers have eyes. 11 out of 11. And finally, our last category, the queers have eyes custom. How queer is this movie? And believe it or not, We've given it 11 out of 11, and we'll tell you why. One, Phyllis goes by Phil instead of Phyllis. Gay. Two, Barb is a bisexual. She's looking at female porn. Gay. Three and four, Mrs. Mac is a spinster who lives with a bunch of girls and a cat. Double gay. Five, there's a children's glee club, and you can't tell me that none of them turn out to be gay. Gay. Six, Peter's sweater. Gay. Seven, they live in a sorority house. There's a reason there's a trope about experimenting in college. Gay. Eight. The killer murders Barb with the unicorn. Arguably the gayest animal. She's also definitely used that as a sex toy at least once. Gay. Nine. The killer has at least one eye. As we know, the queers have eyes. Gay. Ten. I have no proof of this, but Nash is a trans man. That's why he doesn't get the fellatio thing. He's never had a penis. That's also why he's dumb as hell. Eleven. Lieutenant Fuller has a partner. Gay. And that rounds us out to an 11 out of 11 people. Queers Have Eyes, stamp of approval. Here at the Queers Have Eyes, we would like to thank you for tuning in to our inaugural podcast. We'll be here every week sharing all things horror news, queer history, queer icons, and of course, our opinions on the film world. We would like to take a moment to give a quick shout out to the composer and performer of our intro, Joy Brooker. Keep on slaying, babe. I'd also like to shout out Chase and myself for the lyrics. And if you're still here, I just want to say, stay queer, keep your eyes open.